It is without a doubt a privilege to sing about ancient words that remind us of the truths that are found therein. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3 where we're going to begin our services tonight in reading a very brief passage that just lays the groundwork for the study in which we are going to be engaged. As was said by our brother Alan so well, we're thankful for the number of visitors and for our members being with us. And we hope that what we do tonight will not only be pleasing to God, but will be helpful to each other as we explore a subject that is important. And that is the study of God's Word, the Bible itself, God's inspired Word as found in the pages of the volume that you have in front of you, either on dead trees or some of you using electronic versions, whatever version you're using to read from. It's a valuable book to learn from, and it's more than just a book. It is the source of all the good news that God has for each of us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the text says, as we are very familiar with, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We're just going to stop right there and ponder that for just a couple of seconds because We agree as members of the Lord's church, as believers in God's word, as Christians, as saints, we believe that the Bible is inspired. We believe that it is true. And we believe that all the answers to every question that we could otherwise ever ask, those answers are found in this volume. But what happens when someone doesn't believe in the Bible? Or what happens when someone questions the authenticity of the Bible? It makes it kind of difficult to have a biblical discussion with someone who doesn't have a biblical perspective on things. And the vast majority of people in the United States and really in the world believe in some aspects of the Bible and its veracity and its truth. But the authenticity of it is certainly something that needs to be addressed from time to time. And so what I'd like to do tonight is to just talk about the Bible this book and explain that it's really real. It's not just partially real. This is a real book that needs to be read and that based on both external and internal evidences and proofs is a book that needs to be applied and obeyed. You see, if we can get the entire world, 7 billion people or so, however many people have it, if we can get all 7 billion people to believe that this book is truly inspired, that this book is truly special, then all 7 billion of the people will read it and obey it. Now, the challenge is, that's a challenge, right? But we've got to do our best on a day-to-day basis to interact with people who sometimes don't believe in the authenticity of the Bible. So what I wanted us to do tonight is just do a quick survey of four aspects of why the Bible is really real. We're going to look at some history. We're going to look at some geography. We're going to look at some prophecy. We're going to look at some science even tonight. And then we'll look at the unity of the Bible as we conclude. I want to start, first of all, with the notion that when you think about the Bible being really real, it is a Bible that talks a lot about prophecy, and it talks about the fulfillment of that prophecy. So here's the thing. If you could guess something in the future, if, if someone said, write down what's going to happen 100 years from now on a piece of paper or on a post-it note, and then bury it in the dirt and maybe in a jar, and then someone digs it up and see if it comes true 100 years later, 
Nobody's going to get it right as to who the world leaders are going to be, who the U.S. president may be, whether or not the United States even stands at that point, even if the world still remains. Who knows what will happen in a hundred years, let alone hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so the point that I'm trying to make at the outset here is to guess once and get it right isn't impressive, but to do so on hundreds of occasions is a sign that someone, something is behind it all. And what we have found in this book is that things that were written 300, 400, 500, 600, 1,000 years or 1,500 years earlier that were predicted and prophesied actually came to pass. And that's either magic or it's God's providence and God's design. And prophecy is something that we can really appreciate. Let me share with you just a couple of of those in the Old Testament. And you may or may not be familiar with some of these characters. For example, when we think about the King Josiah, most of us know about King Josiah in the sense that he was a very young man when he came to the throne. But let me share with you 1 Kings chapter 13 and verse 1. We're going to go through these rather quickly here because we have two or three prophecies that we want to consider. Let me share with you 1 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, this was a book that was written about events that would transpire some three centuries later. There's about a 300-year period or gap that we're going to address here. Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. So here's the words of God. Behold a child, Josiah by name. So now we get very specific. Very rarely do we get specific in identifying the names of the characters involved. But here we have a specific character name. Somebody by the name of Josiah shall be born, so in the future, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. Now... I could write about a child that was named after the fact and make it look like I was prophesying. But just fast forward over in your Bibles, maybe 20 or 30 pages to the book of 2 Kings chapter 21. And 2 Kings comes after 1 Kings. Remember the first comes before the second, right? But 2 Kings is the events that are transpiring later in the history of the people of Israel and Judah. And in 2 Kings 21, in verse 26... He was buried in the tomb in the garden of Uzzah, that's Ammon, and then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place, and then dropped down to chapter 23 in verse 15. It says, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that, the altar and the high place, and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. Who's doing this? Josiah. Now, one of the things that is interesting is that someone could point at this and say, this still doesn't prove anything to me about how real the Bible is. But I'm here to suggest to you and here to tell you that everybody agrees that the events in 2 Kings chapters 21 and 23 are happening some 300 years, three full centuries after the prediction of it in 1 Kings chapter 13 verses 1 and 2. So someone might say, well, that's just coincidence that he guessed the name 300 years before. Or it's God's design and God's behind the whole thing. Or what about the prophecy of Babylonian captivity? In Isaiah chapter 39, over in the Old Testament. And uh, these are books of the Bible that were written many years before Jesus. In fact, the book of Isaiah written some 700 to 800 years before Jesus. And some 150 years before Jeremiah 52 rolls around. 
But in Isaiah 39, verse 5, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Well, sure enough, we won't take the time to go and read Jeremiah chapter 52, but you remember what happens at the end of the story of the kings and the end of Jeremiah? Certainly the kings are carried off into Babylonian captivity. But here's what's interesting is the events as recorded in Isaiah 39 compared to the events as they unfolded in Jeremiah 52 are spanning approximately a century and a half, approximately 150 years. So now we have two predictions. Just be glad for the sake of your time tonight, I'm not going to go through all the prophecies and predictions of the Old Testament. We'd be here an awful long time. But those are just two. That's just two related to kings and captivity and things of that particular nature. When it comes to Jesus Christ, the world believes in Jesus. Whether or not the world believes in Jesus Christ is different because we believe that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the Christ. But when it comes to Jesus, there are some approximately 300 fulfilled prophecies specifically related to the Christ. I have uh, in my office a book called All the Messianic Prophecies uh, in the Bible. And it goes through and it delineates all the different prophecies. You know how thick that book is? It's probably about two inches thick where it goes through and it delves into each of them in, in great detail. For example, we won't take the time to go back and read, but the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says that Jesus would be born in a city called, you remember where it said? In the city of Bethlehem. And then some four, five, six hundred years later, sure enough, when Matthew chapter 2 rolls around and the narrative of Jesus' birth transpires, it is in the city of Bethlehem. It is said that Jesus would be called out of Egypt in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And sure enough, you remember that Herod was trying to kill all the infant babies, all, 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 the, all the infant boys, uh, at that particular time because he was threatened by the notion of another king of Jesus, this Jesus of Bethlehem who would eventually be called Jesus of Nazareth. And sure enough, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 share the story of the Egyptian uh, fulfillment. And you remember in Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 13 that we see that Jesus or the chosen one, the anointed Messiah, which is I understand a little bit... Uh, uh, repetitive, would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And sure enough, as Matthew chapter 26 rolls around, how much was Jesus sold for? 30 pieces of silver. Now, some might say, well, maybe those books, Micah, Hosea, and Zechariah, which are minor prophets, maybe someone wrote those books after they happened and made it look like a mystery that was coming unfolded. But we know historically and even people who do not believe in the authenticity of the Bible have to say, yeah, those books have been around for 25, 26, 2700 years. Even people who are atheists, people who don't even believe in God, have to acknowledge that those books were there. Now, whether you believe them or not is up to you. But those books were written some five to 700 years before the events transpired where Jesus fulfilled every one of those 300 prophecies. Again, be thankful we're only looking at 1% of them, three out of the 300. But you understand the point that I'm trying to make, and that is when you look at the fulfillment of prophecy, it seems to suggest that there's something about this book that's pretty spectacular. 
Well, that's not just the only thing that we can look at as understanding the Bible to be really real, and that is we need to appreciate history. History is important. Some, some people like history more than others, and that's okay. If you're not a history person, that's okay. But you do have to have a little bit of love for history when it comes to these things that we're going to talk about tonight. Given that the Bible, which is this book, is made up of 66 books, 66 separate entries, it covers a long period of time. It covers thousands of years of history. There are ample opportunities to compare biblical history to non-biblical history. And if you find that biblical history does not coincide with history as is taught or understood elsewhere, then you might have a claim to say, well, this book isn't really real, or it's not a book that I'm going to stake my life on. Because after all, we have all as Christians, those of us who have been baptized into Christ, said, I believe this thing to be real. This is a real volume that has real meaning to me. Over the years, numerous skeptics or people who have not believed in the authenticity of the Bible have pointed to a number of things that the Bible got wrong. And then through history, through archaeology, through studies in geography, they came out to be right. Let me share with you just three very quickly here. These are kind of technical, but hopefully you'll understand where I'm coming from. And if you'd like the notes to what I've got tonight, be glad to provide them to you. I want to start off with the Hittites. And some of you may know where we're going with the subject of the Hittites. Say, well, I don't even know what the Hittites are. That's okay. This is not going to be an expose of the Hittites. It is, however, a discussion of a group of people that were named in the Bible. They were first mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And as was often the case, you have the Moabites, you have the Ammonites, you have the Hittites, you have the Girgashites. You have lots of different ites in the Old Testament. Individuals who oftentimes were uh, the enemy of God's people. And God's people would have to go up against them or there would be uh, a conflict between these various groups. We see them mentioned uh, again in 1 Kings chapter 15, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 11 in verse 1, a passage that we were near a few moments ago. And it's mentioned, that is the Hittites, some 45 times in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. If I was preaching this sermon 250 years ago, and I've been, along, I've been alive almost that long, but if I was preaching this sermon 250 years ago, you may very well scoff at the idea of there being Hittites in the first place. And the reason for that is because until the 1800s, until the 19th century, most of the authorities in history and archaeology discounted the idea of a Hittite people. Here, the Old Testament mentions the Hittites 45 times. God is not real because there's a made-up group of people in the Bible. That's the conclusion that you come to. So therefore, I'm not going to church. I'm not reading my Bible. I'm not going to obey this volume, and my mind is settled. Because God got it wrong because the Hittites are not found in secular history. They're a made-up group of people. Hold on just a second. Because... 150 years ago, ancient tablets were found in Egypt that detailed the existence of a Hittite army. Some 30 to 40 years later, ancient stones were found nearby in Turkey, which spoke of a major Hittite empire. And now, 
even people who don't believe in the authenticity of the Bible say, guess the Hittites are real. They're real people. They really existed. You see, the Bible had it right before we, as historians or academics or archaeologists, got it right. Let me share with you a second aspect, and that is the destruction of Jericho. This is just fascinating to me. We don't have the time to go back and to really reread the story of Jericho, but you remember that Jericho was this great, formidable city that had this great wall around it. And God's people were trying to occupy this land in the book of Joshua chapter 6. And there was great fear and trepidation over taking on such a formidable military might as the city and the community of Jericho. And it describes how the ancient city walls miraculously fell. Remember what happened? They walked around one day, and then they walked around another day, and they marched around another day, and then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, and they blew their horns, and they shouted, and the walls came crumbling down, as we say, right? And the walls came crumbling down. All right, so the walls fell down, and the people went into Jericho, and they took over, and they won. God's people won. The enemy, zero. It was complete victory. Well, that's a far-fetched notion to believe. Many, again, in the academic world scoffed at the idea that such a story could be true. Until in the late 1920s, about 100 years ago from this year, the excavation of the ancient city unearthed remains of the wall. And get this, showed a pattern of stones that had been rolled outward rather than being pushed inward as would have been traditional with a military campaign. I mean, the, the, the enemy doesn't go in and push the walls out. The enemy comes from without and pushes the walls in. But for whatever reason, as they were unearthing the remains of ancient Jericho, it seems to suggest that the walls may have indeed fallen out, just as God's word tells us. Maybe there is something to God's word. Or maybe these are just coincidences that these things are happening to, to come to pass. Well, let me share with you a third, and that is another obscure thing that I've not spent a lot of time studying about until preparing for this particular study. And that is Misha and Moab. We know about Moab. Moab has this ancient history with the people of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4, it cites Mesha or Mesha as the king of Moab who paid a tribute of sheep to the king of Israel. And that's, a, a, again, kind of an obscure story that we don't talk about too much. And we're not going to get into the details of why that happened or what was going on there. But here's the thing that we need to appreciate. Many scholars believe that Mesha was made up. But that's just a made up thing because there was no record of this Mesha and many scholars scoffed at the idea of a barren Moab producing sheep. After all, this was a place wherein sheep would have been uh, in a very fertile land, and therefore it would have lended itself to the production of sheep. So the Bible, again, has got it wrong. But in 1868, which was quite some time ago, in 1868, an ancient stone was discovered. And the ancient stone was discovered, and notice what it says on the stone. It says, I, Misha, king of Moab. And then the stone goes on where the statement went on to talk of paying tribute to the sheep. The tribute was made to Omri, or Omri, 
king of Israel. And of course, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 16, the Bible backs up this particular fact with the identity of a king named Omri or Omri. Those are just three very simple but yet technical historical facts wherein the Bible is proving itself, or maybe to rephrase that, history is proving the authenticity of the Bible more and more. Now let me just stop here as we are now uh, well into our study to say that some would say, I want to believe the Bible just based on faith. And I understand that. And, there, and there's nothing wrong with saying, I believe faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. But there are evidences out there, outside of scripture, and particularly when we're dealing with people who are our co-workers or our family or our friends or individuals who are our neighbors that may say, you know what, you believe in the Bible, but I don't believe it's a real book. I mean, I believe it's a real book that you can hold, but I don't believe there's really any authenticity to it. If you can share, you know what, there was a sermon a few weeks ago. The preacher wasn't that great, but the sermon itself actually mattered because it talked about the fact that there were historical things that they used to discount and they made fun of the Bible, and then they found out a couple hundred years after the fact that, wow, that really did happen historically. Let me share with you some scientific facts. I am not a scientific person. Science was never really my strong suit in school, but I do enjoy it a little bit. And usually when you look at the scientific community, it again mocks the notion of a divinely inspired book. Science is the one that teaches us that the world uh, and the universe... Uh, came about some four and a half or five plus uh, billion years ago or how many billions it is now, I've lost track, 12 trillion, 12 billion, whatever it is. They change it all the time, which is interesting that they can change their thoughts uh, on when the creation of the world happened. But we believe that the earth is relatively young. We believe that God spoke it into existence. And when someone says, well, how did he do that? Uh, we go back to Gerald. As we did this morning. <laughs> and we, we say, as we did in our Bible class this morning, that Gerald has all the answers to the difference. I'm not sure why we're picking on Gerald today, but that, that's okay. Today's pick on Gerald. But the point that I'm trying to make is simply this. God said it. I believe it. Someone once said, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God said it. Bang, it happened. And I believe it. And that's okay, too, to believe that. Because that's what the scriptures seem to suggest. Let me share with you here that the scientific community uh, scoffs at the idea of there even being an existence of God. But consider three things that the Bible got right long before science did. And you're familiar with some of these. Uh, there's a whole study of apologetics or evidences. And again, there are books out there written by people that are a lot smarter than me that share all of these facts in very uh, nice nuggets that are great for being able to understand Wow, this is amazing. I'm giving you two or three examples. There are hundreds of examples. For example, what about the fact that the earth is round? We know in Isaiah chapter 40 and in verse 22 that there's a reference to the circle of the earth, that there's a reference to the roundness of the globe, that there's a reference to the circle in which we live. And that was written some 2,200 years before the concept was readily accepted and was provable. For example, in the early 16th century with Magellan and his circumventing the globe in 1519 to 1521, wow, you can go around the earth and end up at the same spot. And it's not flat, and you won't sail and fall off into a ditch or whatever the case may be. These are things that we understand 
And everyone says, oh yeah, the earth is round. We believe the earth is round. But 600 years ago, people said the earth is flat. But long before people were coming up to that conclusion, Isaiah was already talking about the fact that the earth was circular in nature. Let me suggest to you, secondly, the idea of the earth's four corners. Turn, if you would, to the book of Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 12. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 12. And I just want to read that passage here real quickly. Isaiah, again, wrote some 2,700 years before today. And he says in chapter 11 and in verse 12, he says, He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed to Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, some of us suggest, well, that's just kind of a uh, figurative way of talking about all the different areas of the earth. And some have said, well, here's, a, here's an area where the Bible is silly because it's talking about the four corners of the earth. And in fact, this image was made fun of by scholars. We should probably put the word scholars in quotes and an asterisk next to the name after what we've done tonight, right? But this was made fun of by those scholars. But then some... Less than 100 years ago, with the advent of satellite imagery, numerous images confirmed the existence of four definitive, identifiable plateaus or region that seemed to fit together around the globe. So even though it's a round globe, the scientific community says, yeah, there is something to be said for there being like four sections of the earth and the plateaus coming together. Now, that's beyond me. Probably beyond Gerald in the scientific world. But if the scientists are now saying this stuff is real, I've got to say the Bible is talking about it 2,700 years earlier. And then thirdly, what about the character of the wind? Job chapter 28. Job is a very uh, uh, interesting book in which that we can study. But I want to look at two passages here real quickly in the lengthy book of Job. Job chapter 28. And in verse 25, uh, the Bible says to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. A weight for the wind, what is that all about? Wind doesn't have weight to it. It's just there. It just blows by, blows your hair, blows the leaves or whatever the case may be. Wind doesn't have weight. God got it wrong. The Bible isn't true. I'm done with this book. That's how some people respond, right? I find one thing that is wrong. I'm not going to read this book anymore. Well, then turn over, if you would, in the book of Job, chapter 38, in verse 24. And this might make you even further upset. In chapter 38, verse 24, the text says, By what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Now, both of these passages make a whole lot more sense given the fact that science has proven two key things. One about light and the previous about wind. And that is this. We now know that air or wind has weight and has pressure to it. And in fact, in parts of the country where storms are more prevalent, this is much more important to them. Measuring the barometric pressure is now something that we readily do and you can see on the news or see printed on the internet. And we also know that now, depending on where the sun is or how much sunshine there is or where you are along the equator or away from the equator, the sun has profound effect on the wind, which it seems to be what Job 38 may have been talking about. The point that I'm trying to make is simply this. 
that the things that people in the smart world community came up with and said this can't be true are actually posing to be true. Let me suggest to you finally, and that is we believe the Bible is real because of the unity of the Bible. Consider, if you would, just some simple facts about the Bible. It is a book that is comprised of 66 separate books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to the book of Revelation. We're not going to quote them all. But our young people could quote them, right? And that's great. So Genesis to Revelation is 66 separate entries. It is written over a period of some 1,500, some have suggested maybe as much as 1,600 years. Now, if you and I were to write a book over the course of 1,500 years, it would take probably a good, uh, at, the, at a minimum, uh, 15 authors to make that continue at, at 100 years life, lifespan. We would probably have some conflicts in our story. Keep in mind also that not only was it written over the period of 1,500 years, it was written in three different languages by 40 different men, including a doctor, a fisherman. It included a shepherd, a king, a political assistant. And here's the thing that I think is interesting. You have a book written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents, but you have unity throughout the entire book. And you have no contradictions found therein. And if you come up with someone and you, and you interact with someone who says, well, I believe the Bible has contradictions, ask them to show you where. Because chances are they're probably not going to be able to show you. They've heard that from someone. It's what's happened. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There's nothing in this book that is not provable by either our faith, which, of course, I understand is something that we've not talked a lot about tonight, but of course, it's found within this book. These are different times, different writers, different geographies, and they write the same thing and they never contradict one another. And what they say is that Jesus Christ is the central figure of the Bible, wherein the Old Testament teaches us about a big thing to come. The Gospels teach us about the big thing that's happening. And the New Testament, the remaining 20-some books, teach us about the big thing that just happened. That's the story of the Bible in a short 30-second summary. This perfect book is obviously not written by mere men. If you're going to write a book that does all of this and has scientific, archaeological, historic, and outside evidences that are now pointing to its authenticity, the thing that we come up with is that the Bible is indeed really, really real. Now, our faith is greater than anything else. And let's face it, we believe that God's word is real because of our faith in Jesus Christ and because of our faith. But when we talk to individuals in the world and we interact with them, we are not people who are foolish for believing in the inspired nature of God's word. We believe it to be real. And we don't apologize for that. And we'll never apologize for that because of the authenticity of the scriptures which provide us all things that pertain to life and godliness as Peter suggests in 1 Peter chapter 1. I hope that these things will be helpful to you. Because the obvious conclusion is this. If we believe that this book is real, 
if we believe that it is inspired, then I hope that in just 35 minutes or so tonight we've had the capacity to be able to share, yeah, I think this is more real than I ever believed it to be, then we've got to obey it. Now, if you don't believe this book, then you won't obey it. But one day you, as well as all of us, will stand before our God on the day of judgment and we'll give an answer for the way that we have lived because one day we'll stand before him and give an answer for the choices we've made. You're involved in a life that is broken as we're going to sing here in just a moment and all of our lives have been broken at some point. And until Jesus has the ability to put it back together by our faithful obedience to him in baptism and our confession of faith and our repentance of our sins, your life will continue to be broken. But we hope that tonight that we can help you to come to Jesus, to make your life right with God. And if that's something that we can help you with, we're happy to. If as a child of God, you're not living correctly and you need to make some sort of correction We'd love the opportunity to, to pray with you, to pray for you, to sit down and to study with you. Or maybe tonight something has piqued your interest or you're talking with someone about the authenticity of the Bible and you want to know more about these things. Let us know and we'll be glad to study these things further for your benefit as well as the benefit of those whom you may be teaching. If we can help you in any way. Let us know while together we stand and while we sing.